This is David Green. I'm the co-founder of Fearless Media and your host here on Left, Right, and Center. This is the show where we take on all the political issues, even the complicated ones that might divide your own family. Well, we know a lot more than we did a week ago about the balance of power in Washington. Democrats are keeping control in the Senate regardless of what happens in that December 6th runoff for a Senate seat in Georgia. Republicans will now control the House with a narrow majority. And also, there's an historic passing of the torch. Nancy Pelosi will not run again to lead House Democrats after two decades at the top. She became the most powerful woman ever in American politics. Never would I have thought that someday I would go from homemaker to House Speaker. In fact, I never... In fact, I never intended to run for public office. Mommy and Daddy taught us through their example that public service is a noble calling and that we all have a responsibility to help others. And we're going to spend some time on Pelosi's legacy on next week's show, so definitely come back for that. Now, before Pelosi steps down, there's some legislating to do. Let the lame duck session begin. The question is, are Democrats going to be able to squeeze some substantive bills through before they lose their full hold on Congress? Let's bring in our left, right, and center panel. I'm your host at your center. We have on the left, Moa Lathy, executive director at Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service, also was communications director for the Democratic National Committee and an advisor to Hillary Clinton. And on the right, Sarah Isger is back. She's staff writer at The Dispatch, lawyer, and was the spokesperson at the Department of Justice under President Trump. Hello to you both. Hola. Hey, David. Um, so let me get first impressions from each of you about how this balance of power in Washington shifting is going to change the country, our politics, our lives. Are we going to feel something different from Washington? Sarah, I'll start with you. I think of this as a cross-wave election. You had all of the fundamentals of the red wave still there, the economic indicators, the historical trends, Biden's low approval numbers. But it gets totally swamped out by this other blue wave. And we can always talk about what was part of that. But certainly uh, abortion looks like it played a large role. Some of the problems within the Republican Party, candidate quality, uh, you know, Republicans all choosing to vote on election day so that the Republican operation didn't know that they were running behind. Regardless, the result is this status quo at the surface level. But underneath the water, there's all this tumult in both parties, frankly. But I'll just speak to the Republican side, as we saw this week in the leadership elections, you know, out of 48 or whatever Republican senators that voted, 10 voted for Rick Scott over Mitch McConnell. And on the House side, uh, what about 33 voted against Kevin McCarthy? Um, that tells you about where the fractures are in you know, the Republican elected body right now. Cross currents often cause boats to like tip over, which kind of worries me if that's the kind of waves we're talking about. Um, but uh, yeah, Mo, is that your general impression as well? Or are you seeing something different? Generally, I agree with Sarah on this. You know, I, we, we, we don't really do massive pendulum swings anymore. We sometimes will do uh, pendulum nudges. Yeah. And so for all the talk about the red wave, it felt like uh, it, we were headed more towards a little bit of a red nudge. And even that, I'm not sure, happened. Uh, when you see some of the gains that Democrats made around the country, they were able to hold off a massive wave, uh, a, a massive Republican majority in the House. But there's a chance Democrats might increase their, their um, majority in the Senate. 
there is a there are more Democratic governors uh, coming in next year than there were before this election. And Democrats flipped a number of state legislatures around the country. So I do uh, feel like this was a cross current. Both parties have something to point to and both parties have something to worry about. I think Sarah identified some of the challenges with the Republican Party. The president, I think, did a very good job of reframing what is typically a referendum on, on an incumbent president in a midterm, reframing it as a choice and almost more of a referendum on the Republican Party, which is pretty remarkable in a midterm year given the political environment. Uh, but Democrats have some things that they've got to figure out as well. Um, yes, people reacted strongly to the Dobbs decision. Yes, people reacted strongly to the type of election denialism that we were hearing from a lot of Republican candidates. But that does not mean inflation, the economy, and crime go away. That, that does not mean those are still not top of mind issues. And so moving forward, Democrats have to be able to take those issues off the table before the next election, or they might have a challenge. Let's talk about what Democrats might be able to do, like, in the coming weeks, I mean, during this lame duck session. Um, the Senate held this procedural vote on the Respect for Marriage Act. 62 senators supported the bill in this test vote. That's enough to overcome a filibuster. Um, so it looks like this bill could pass and become law. This this would repeal the 96 Defense of Marriage Act, which defined marriage as the union of one man and one woman. And, and this bill would, would require states to recognize marriages that were valid in the state where that marriage took place. And this, of course, becomes important if Obergefell, the big Supreme Court decision, is overturned. Um, Sarah, you know, this, this seems bipartisan or as bipartisan as we're going to get these days. Is this a good bill? Yeah, I think it is. And and look, let's be I just want to emphasize something that you just said. None of this matters right now because right. Obergefell is the law of the land from the Supreme Court. So Obergefell has to be overturned. And I understand there's some people who think that there's a possibility for that. But again, as, as someone who reads a lot of Supreme Court opinions, listen to all the arguments in Dobbs, uh, the Kavanaugh concurrence in Dobbs and Justice uh, Chief Justice Roberts make that impossible right now. So again, we are talking about um, a bill that at this point is largely a messaging bill from both sides. And yes, it'll become law. And I hope it kind of gives everyone a deep breath, calms them down. What I find kind of fascinating from the Republican side is they had the opportunity to do this a long time ago. You know, both sides sort of refused to come to the table, believed that they could win it all when it came to gay marriage. Republicans turned down civil unions. Republicans turned down this full faith and credit option where, you know, Kentucky doesn't have to issue marriage licenses to people that they don't want to. But if you go get married in Massachusetts, Kentucky has to recognize your marriage nevertheless. Um, I wonder if Republicans had agreed to this law in 2010, let's say, whether Obergefell would have come down the same way. I don't know that Justice Kennedy rules the way he does in 2015 with this law in place. So um, for Republicans who cared about this issue, it's an interesting political lesson over time. Well, Mo, let me ask you, it, it, This you, there is some grumbling on on the left about this law not doing enough. Um 
because it would not require states to actually issue marriage certificates, which is something that might be very vulnerable in in front of the court. Um, So that's the reason they drafted it this way. But some are grumbling that this still would make same-sex marriages second-class marriages. Um, what, 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 how do you react to that? Is that, a, is that a valid complaint? Like if we're, if we're not going to go all the way, don't do it. Uh, I'm, I'm nev- I, I don't ever believe it. Uh, we ought to go all or, or nothing. I think, um, you know, throughout our history, progress has oftentimes, you know, come incrementally. Uh, and this is even a great example of that. I mean, it was in 2006, not that long ago, Republicans were getting some pretty significant electoral success by putting a bunch of anti-gay marriage ballot referendums on the ballot. Two years later, the leading Democratic candidates for president were openly against same-sex marriage uh, and for civil unions. So the fact that we have continued uh, this progress resulting in that historic Uh, or culminating with that historic Supreme Court ruling is pretty remarkable. But as long as there's concern about um, what a future court could do, and there's a lot of anxiety on the left after Dobbs that the court could do things that they don't like, um, it makes sense to codify it. In order to codify it, we need bipartisan support. If this is the way to get there, even if it's not 100% right, it offers more protections, then it's the right thing to do. On the flip side, by the way, David, just imagine, you know, I talked about Republicans sort of refusing the compromise for the last, you know, 20 years or whatever in the walk up to this. But imagine on the Democratic side, on abortion, same thing, right? There were compromises along the way that could have been possible um, in the 90s, for instance, on codifying a a lesser version of Roe in case Roe were ever overturned. Those were turned down because like, you know, we don't need that. And um, same thing, right? I think that both sides would be better if they listen to their incrementalists more. And perhaps Mo and I are just incrementalist cheerleaders here. But what about the non-incrementalist who say, you know, Obergefell gave us the victory that we deserve? That's right. That's equality. By codifying this, it is settling for something that is that is less than that. It's a backstop. That's what laws sometimes are when it comes to Supreme Court. And that's what Congress is supposed to be, an area of compromise. And it doesn't mean it can't change. That's the other, I think, important thing about Congress versus the Supreme Court and why we need to stop settling everything in these court fights. Go back to Congress because we can pass this today. You can pass something else in the next Congress and move it along that way. Why not have this backstop there? Because you're not going to get the codification of Obergefell right now. Um, And at the same time, I do think it's also worth noting that if you get married in Massachusetts under this law, again, assume Obergefell's gone and somehow we're living under this law in the future, there's going to be whatever it is, 30 states that recognize, sorry, issue a marriage license to gay couples. Those will be recognized everywhere and they have to be given the full faith and credit. So I understand the symbolic point, but the practical one is pretty small. Symbolic and also feeling like you're second class citizens in a way. I mean, feeling like you can't get a marriage certificate in your own in your own state. I mean, I I, I don't know what that would be like, but I can imagine that that's that's an emotional reality that that's not that pleasant. No, I think that's that's right. But again, there are ten Republican senators that came along with this piece of legislation. It will pass a Democratic-controlled House. 
probably will not pass a Republican-controlled House, which is what we will have in just a few short weeks. So if if I get it, I get why this is an emotional uh, concern for so many people, but this is better than nothing. And if a Republican House votes this down and the Supreme Court does overturn it, that I think is a far worse position to be in and to have to claw back from than um, than what this bill would do. Let me let me shift gears a little bit. Um, Democrats are also prioritizing getting something done on immigration. They seem to be pushing for legislation that would protect the so-called dreamers who benefited from from the DACA program. Um, Mo, among among different options for how to to act on immigration, what, why is that the priority? Do you think what are they hoping to accomplish? Well, look, this has been a top priority of Democrats in the immigration um, uh, debate for a long time. And it is also one, and Sarah can probably speak to this better than I, but it is also one where there is a decent amount of Republican support. This is something that Republicans, that at least some Republicans have signaled in the past that they could get on board with. It takes us out of some of the more contentious issues and focuses on one that has had some historical Republican support and that um, has quite a bit of support amongst the general public. The general public believes that these dreamers ought not to be penalized, ought not to um, have to worry about their future. They do not believe that they believe that they have been caught up in the politics of immigration. Um, and so it makes sense to try to get this done now when there seems to be a little bit of uh, opportunity to do so. Sarah, I mean, familiar refrain. We we hear Republicans saying that there's got to be, you know, funding and support for border security in in legislation like this. And you know, I think about Blake Masters and his in his Senate run in Arizona, the Republican saying, "Let's militarize the border. Let's end this invasion." I mean, well short of those things, what what are some things that might make this more palatable for Republicans to get behind in this lame duck session when it comes to border security? So, and let's just break out incrementalism here, because one part of incrementalism is what we just talked about, which is, you know, taking the the lesser while working toward the greater. But another part of incrementalism is doing it piecemeal. And I think that one of the huge mistakes when it's come to immigration reform is this idea that you must have this massive immigration package that solves everything and gets everyone on board Surely we have learned over the past 15 years that is not going to happen. And so the idea of breaking out DACA on its own with nothing else, um, I think has a much greater chance of moving in this lame duck than than any immigration reform will have in the foreseeable future. But Republicans have a hangover. It's been a 35-year hangover, so bear with me. But, you know, in 1986, Reagan signs into law the Immigration Reform and Control Act. And the deal with that was, very broadly speaking here, much, you know, he was promising total border security, tighter security at the Mexican border, and penalties for employers who hired illegal immigrants. So we were going to solve the illegal immigration problem. No one else was coming in. And if they were here, they weren't going to work, so they were going to go home. In exchange, anyone coming to the country um, outside of four years previously, so before 1982, got amnesty. 
And at the time, that felt like the grand compromise. And Republicans feel incredibly burned by that because obviously the amnesty got granted, but the border security didn't happen. The putting teeth into those penalties for employers didn't really happen. And so anytime you promise them something in the future, like border security, but it'll take five years to do it, and we're going to now grant citizenship or um, status to these people now, all they think about is 1986. And I don't know how you're going to get over that that fear that they have. Mo, is there something standing in the way of putting some border security funding into, you know, a, a DACA bill in this lame duck session to try and bring Republicans along who have those those memories that Sarah mentioned? I mean, we'll see. I mean, a, a lot of Democrats will tell you that that you know they need to that that they agree with the need to stress border security. I I, I don't know very many that say we shouldn't. So I think there's still a little bit of time here to try to see if they can weave some of that in. Um, whether or not they get there, that remains to be seen. But I do think, and I do agree with Sarah that you know. Doing this piecemeal may be the best way to do it. And, you know, once they start adding in other things, then that's going to force, then that gives license to other people to start trying to add things in beyond that. And suddenly we're moving away from a piecemeal approach and more towards uh, a comprehensive approach. And the more comprehensive it gets, History has shown us the more challenging it is. So it may be easiest just to simply try this uh, as a standalone. Making the case for piecemeal and incrementalism. I love it. Um, all right, we're going to be right back with Mo Lathy and Sarah Isger in just a moment. We're going to talk more about Republican soul-searching here on Left, Right, and Center. You're hearing civilized yet provocative opinions from across the political spectrum. Now we need to know what you think. Tweet us at LRCKCRW. We're back again with more Left, Right, and Center. I'm David Green, the co-founder of Fearless Media at Your Center. On the left, we have Moa Lathy, executive director at Georgetown's Institute of Politics and Public Service. And on the right, Sarah Isger, a lawyer, staff writer at The Dispatch, and former spokesperson at the Department of Justice under President Trump. Well, it has been a big week for Republicans digesting some disappointing midterm results, reflecting, questioning what went wrong, looking back at the polls they were relying on. Although, for one Republican, something different. As we all know, former President Trump officially came out and declared that he is running for another term. He did this despite being blamed for congressional candidates he endorsed losing and for this big red wave we heard about just not happening. Also, many of his formerly staunch supporters were notably not at his launch event. His own former vice president, Mike Pence, said voters will have better choices for president. And his daughter, former White House advisor Ivanka Trump, was missing, saying she would not be involved in politics anymore. Even the conservative New York Post ran a very small headline at the bottom of their front page that read simply, Florida man makes announcement. Um, Sarah, how big a deal is this? Is the seemingly boundless Trump magic coming to an end, or is he going to find a way to, to recapture the the magic and and we're all going to be looking back at this and saying that we shouldn't have drawn conclusions. I'm not going to predict anything because there's at some safe, point very Trump, safe. Yeah, at some point Trump has to come to an end. But 
we've seen this show before on January 6th and, you know, January 7th, everyone snaps back to attention, not literally, but, you know, within a week, this seems like a much slower role. And so maybe that will actually help. I mean, to offer you the visual, it's like a whole bunch of Republican leaders in the French Revolution asking where their people are going, but they're all standing together, looking down the line at one another, saying, okay, we're going, right? We're going, yes, yes, now. Okay, one step forward. Okay, we all made the step. Yes, yes, now can we take another step? And so maybe that will be more effective than January 6th or the aftermath of January 6th. But it doesn't solve their problem, which is, uh, okay, if... This is 2016 in terms of the Republican primary all over again. Donald Trump wins that. Uh, You know, all of the Republicans will try to take out DeSantis so that they can be in the head-to-head with Trump, and they'll fight amongst each other for so long that Trump will just be off here getting all these votes. That's what happened in 2016, in short. Or it could look like the 2008 Democratic primary, Obama versus Clinton. Yeah, John Edwards and a bunch of other people ran who we don't remember, but the conversation was so focused on Obama versus Clinton that nobody else was able to break through. And that's looking like what the DeSantis-Trump head-to-head could be for this Republican primary. But even if DeSantis is the nominee, Donald Trump's not going away. He could run as a third party. There's sore loser laws. Ballot access is going to be really hard for a campaign that isn't known for its organizational skills. Um, But even if he doesn't do that, he can sit on the sidelines and hit DeSantis. I mean, a burn it to the ground strategy, even if he's lost a ton of momentum with Republican voters, DeSantis doesn't have the room to lose two points in a general election. Um, And Donald Trump is the nominee. Again, at this moment, even with all of the bad economic indicators, the historical problems, Biden's approval numbers, that's what this midterm really was a test of. That wasn't enough. Donald Trump's message this week was, yeah, but it'll get worse. I don't know the Republican voters are going along with that. And of course, we have the Siena YouGov poll, uh, conservatives, Republicans, and Trump 2020 voters. They broke all of those out. Trump underwater to DeSantis by 18 points, 7 points, 11 points. DeSantis winning all of those groups right now. I mean, given what you're describing, like even if the, the the party writ large decides to go in a different direction, like say DeSantis, Trump will stay on the sidelines with with a a loud and sizable, whatever the size is, base of support. I mean, do you see the party coming together in a way where they can keep a cohesive voting block together and beat a Democrat in a White House run? I know it's a while off, but but that I mean, that's just what you're describing doesn't bode well. There's no indication today that that's the case. Look at the leadership race between Mitch McConnell and Rick Scott. I mean, Mitch McConnell won handily, but there were 10 Republican senators who didn't vote for Mitch McConnell. These aren't policy differences, by the way. The only policy difference I can discern in the Republican rump coalition fights is maybe over Ukraine, but that's not some rallying cry for them. It's a vibe difference. It's the anger, resentment, you know, you're not fighting hard enough. Mitch McConnell is an assassin, you know, like if you don't like Mitch McConnell as your chief political operative, I don't know what to tell you, man. He's the best there ever was. He's cocaine Mitch. Um, And the fact that a sizable number of the Republican caucus in the Senate didn't want to go that direction and wanted to follow Rick Scott, who had just spent all this money, lost the midterm elections for them, keeps them in the minority. 
yeah, doesn't bode well for the whole getting everyone rowing in the same direction in the primaries here, post-primaries. I can't get over cocaine, Mitch. That was amazing. Um, <laughs> Mo, I mean, are, are are Democrats looking at this and, and I, I don't know, like, how do they seize this moment if they're looking at a Republican Party that, that appears to be soul-searching and potentially really divided in in very foundational ways as, as we head towards 24? Uh, by not screwing up. Uh, that's a good answer. I think that's a, an easier said than done, but good answer. Much easier said than done. Look, I mean, first on the Trump thing, I think you, you never underestimate the guy. You never take him out of the game. He has proven to defy all laws of political gravity time and time again. And he's got a couple things going for him and a couple things working against him this time, right? First of all, he's one of the things, one of the, his biggest appeals in 2016 was that he was an outsider running against the system. He lost that, the ability to say that when he ran for re-election in 2020. So you see now he's got an opportunity to sort of try to recapture that outsider running against the system mantle. He can't do it as effectively this time as he did the first time, but at least he's back in that space. The downside for him, and, and this is something I don't think we, we focus on enough, one of the reasons his approach was so appealing, I think, in 2016 was because a lot of Republican voters were tired of losing. They lost the midterms in 2006. They lost the presidential in 2008. They lost the presidential in 2012. And so someone like Trump was able to step in and say, aren't you all tired of this? The old approach isn't working. Let's try something new. And for a lot of people, they said, okay. The problem is he's now the three-time loser, having lost the midterms when he was president, losing his reelection bid, and then being blamed for this historic defeat I do wonder if now there are people who say, okay, his approach hasn't worked. He hasn't worked. Who can give us what we like about him without that baggage and who might actually win? That's part of, I think, DeSantis's appeal right now um, because he did something in Florida that was pretty remarkable. But we also haven't seen DeSantis on a national stage. And, there, and, and political graveyards are full of people <laughs> who we all played up. So true. And then, you know, once they stepped out onto the national stage, they couldn't live up to the moment. Yeah, at all. So we'll see. I also just think Republicans, by the way, that look back now at 2016 and are realizing what a moonshot, needle-threading electoral college victory that was. Donald Trump didn't win the popular vote. And so the idea that you're going to somehow string together that so thin coalition to win again in 2024 with Donald Trump when everything Mo said is exactly right. He's no longer the change candidate. He's lost a bunch of other, you know, you have a track record now. It's tough. But again, if DeSantis is the nominee, Donald Trump will have two, 10% of the Republican electorate who maybe he can tell them to stay home. But Mo, I mean, you said the Democrats can't screw up. And I mean, I, I know it was a thread the needle 2016, Sarah, as you said, but but the the Democratic Party made some serious mistakes. And, and aren't we sort of seeing those mistakes continue as we look at some of these, you know, these these poll numbers? I mean, you know, and, and I want to talk with our pollsters about this a little later in this show. But, you know, losing Latino voters because those are working class voters largely based on statistics and people who are having less faith in Democrats 
to basically deliver on their needs, their pocketbooks, their families, um, focusing on the wrong things. Like, isn't that a recipe for Democrats if they can't solve that? Losing states like Pennsylvania, losing states like Ohio to, to a DeSantis or a Trump. Yeah, look, it is a red flag and one that now they've got to focus on. They do need to figure out how to, I mean, it wasn't that long ago the Democratic Party was the party of the working class. That has become a real challenge. Uh, I, I'm interested in drilling down on the on the election, the midterm election data a little bit more because what Ron DeSantis did with Latinos in Florida was pretty remarkable, but it doesn't seem to have played out across the country. Um, Democrats, I think, held on to their margins in Nevada and in winning a couple of seats in South Texas, people were afraid of. So, but the fact that it's even a conversation is something Democrats need to be concerned about. But I think one thing that the president said during this election that was absolutely so critical and people kind of dismissed, but it is a fundamental truth of elections, is that elections are choices. And so what the Democratic Party, what his administration chooses to focus on over the next couple of years is going to matter. What the Republican candidates for president talk about is going to matter. If the president and Democrats are talking about um, the economy and are talking about inflation and are talking about how they, you know, creating jobs, that's a good thing. If Republicans, if Donald Trump is still talking about being the victim, one of my favorite lines of his announcement speech, I am the victim, or Ron DeSantis out there running a campaign based solely on fighting wokeness, I don't think it's going to be as challenging for Biden to hold on to his seat. Sarah, I mean, I know it was a thread the needle, but aren't there reasons to think that the Democratic Party will you know, this this sort of trend with working class voters is a real problem for them and and a real opportunity for Republicans. Sure. In some ways, this midterm election was a gift to operatives, at least in both parties, because uh, they stemmed, you know, Democrats had historic wins. I mean, this was, I know, this, again, the status quo on top, but Democrats should be incredibly pleased with what happened. At the same time, you know, there's plenty, as Mo pointed out, of problems underneath the water for the Democratic Party. They have the same fractures of the progressive wing being way, way out of touch with their traditional base voters, including black voters, including working class voters. All of those trends are still continuing. It just didn't cost them as much this cycle. Um, on the Republican side, you know, something that I haven't seen a lot of people point out, so I'll just do a little deep dive into it, is that when you know, think back to, to 2008 or 2012, Mo will know this well. Republicans led in absentee ballots, something that we would call A-B chase um, on the operative side, because, I mean, old people voted by mail a lot. It was still a relatively small amount of the electorate that was voting early or voting by mail, but Republicans were slightly ahead on all of that. And so they could use that, both sides, frankly, could, to have their voter models, their internal predictions of what they needed to win, and be able to compare that three weeks out from an election, see where they were falling short, where they were doing better. And they didn't just have to rely on polling. Fast forward now, Donald Trump has so changed the operational side of the Republican Party where 
all of these Republican voters are voting on election day instead of voting by mail and voting early. And then the reverse is true for Democrats. All that has done is give Democrats a huge, huge structural advantage because they still have those voter models. And three weeks out, Democratic campaigns were looking at what was coming in, comparing that to the polls and saying, huh, that's interesting. Republicans didn't know they were losing until three hours after the polls closed. It's so interesting. Yeah, I'm glad you. I'm glad you took the deep dive there because I did not realize that or even think about it. Um, well, I uh, we're going to do something a little different this week. Um, I am going to say goodbye to our panel and come back with two pollsters, one from the left and one from the right. But um, Sarah Isger, Moa Lathy, thank you as always, and uh, we'll have you on again soon. Thank you. Thanks, David. All right, pollsters from the left and the right here on Left, Right, and Center in a moment. Thanks for listening to Left, Right, and Center. Is there someone in your life who could benefit from hearing a civilized discussion from all sides? Share the show with them. You can stream all episodes at kcrw.com slash LRC, straight from the KCRW app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, we're back again with Left, Right, and Center. I'm your host, David Green, and uh, we are doing something a little different now in our last segment of the show. We have uh, two pollsters with us, two of the best pollsters in Washington, I will say, from the left and from the right. On the left, Margie Amaro. She's a Democratic pollster and principal at GBAO Strategies, and on the right, Republican pollster Jim Hobart, partner at Public Opinion Strategies. Um Hello to you both. It's great to have you. When I used to host Morning Edition at NPR, we would the three of us would get together, so it's fun to bring the band back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great. Thanks, David. Um, I would love to pick up on what we were just hearing from, from Sarah Isger, talking about sort of the effect of Donald Trump's messaging about elections causing this shift. And you have a lot of Republican voters who are no longer voting absentee or by mail, and you have more Democratic voters who are, and that gave Democrats kind of more of an advantage in the final weeks to know what to expect, and Republicans were kind of blindsided. Is that Does that narrative strike the two of you as, as people who were, were on the inside? Does that strike you as, as sort of what, what played out? Well, I think there's both a message piece to it and a structural campaign operations piece to it. I mean, it's not like it's simple to have a kind of male absentee early voting strategy and an election day strategy. There's a whole host of added complications to make sure you're paying the right amount of attention to all of it. Also, your advertising may change. If the folks that you expect to be voting on election day are disproportionately Republican, should you change your communications at the final week because you're now persuading the more Republican side of the electorate rather than the folks who are voting early. So there's just a lot of, you know, operations to it. But I think what's interesting is what does it mean in terms of message? I mean, we've talked a lot, uh, you know, uh, and Sarah and Mo were talking about this too, like what does it mean for candidates and elected officials to um, to, to go along with Trump no matter what? Um, and what do they have to do in order to show their loyalty? And there's something about, Republican voters feeling like they have to be suspicious of how elections are run as sort of 
being part of the Trump movement. If you look at the exit polls, the folks who are not at all confident in the way state elections, uh, whether they're fair or accurate, or even not very confident, that's a lot smaller than the folks who are somewhat or very confident. And so that group, the, the less confident folks, those are overwhelmingly Republican, and the more confident folks are are Democrat or, or slightly less, you know, the divide is not as great. So they're, they're, it's forcing that message from the Republican side is sort of forcing this, you know, this group of Republicans to feel, I think, you know, skeptical in a way that is, you know, putting them on the outside of where the majority of Americans are. And do you think that played out in a way that, that hurt Republicans in terms of results, that, that skepticism? I mean, that's sort of what Sarah was was suggesting, you know, relying on Election Day and, and maybe not being able to make it to the polls at the last minute. Um, did, did Trump's message sort of undermining confidence in elections actually hurt Republicans and, and the results? I mean, I think it, you know, creates a, a muddled message, right? If people are not sure if it's counted correctly and therefore are not sure if they should be enthusiastic about voting, how is that's not really a good geo, what we call GOTV get out the vote strategy, um, where you're saying your vote is important, you need to make your voice heard, and you know everybody's doing it. It's fun, it's easy, but it's not going to matter you know, if it's all fraud. <laughs> Right. And you're like, okay, if it's like, no, it's terrible. They're going to, you know, not count it. And, you know, even if they do count it, then they'll, you know, they'll throw the results out. Like that's not, that's not really encouraging people to turn out and vote, is it? Jim, did you see that as a problem? You know, look, I wish Republicans would go back to being good, reliable, early voters, whether it be in person or by mail. But we're starting to get to see some of the turnout patterns in various states. And what we have seen is, look, Republicans didn't lose this election on turnout. Republicans lost this election on persuasion. You look at Georgia. African-American turnout was down compared to 2018. Hispanic turnout was down compared to 2018. White turnout was up. That should be an advantage. We still are in a runoff in the Senate race there. In Pennsylvania, turnout was down a little bit in Philadelphia. Fetterman still won pretty handedly because he did so much better in persuasion with those white working class voters. When you go county by county in Pennsylvania, Fetterman outperformed by percentage in, in almost every single county, though, over what Biden did in 2020. So, so it's pretty clear that where Republicans really didn't get what we were hoping to out of this election is, is because of persuasion. Yes, it's nice if we turn out early because then you can divert resources to some low propensity voters. There's no doubt about that. But in terms of where Republicans really need to look in the mirror after what happened on Tuesday, it, it's why we lost the persuasion battle in these elections. What issues did you see that most starkly on when it comes to, to losing the persuasion battle as Republicans? Look, I think it's pretty clear that the Dobbs was a losing issue for us in abortion. And then I think this issue that Marjorie was somewhat touching on this, this protecting democracy issue. And then when you look at these late deciders, late deciders broke the Democrats way. And when you look at them, did they like Biden? No, but they also didn't like Trump. And I think ultimately their decision was when they were looking to the lesser of two evils, they preferred the Democrat to the Republican candidate because that Republican candidate in so many instances was so in intrinsically tied to Trump. Margie, where, where do you look when you look at Democrats winning and, and the, the persuasion battle? What, what issues really stand out to you? Well, for sure, abortion. There's no question. Um, you know, I know there was talk in the fall, and there was lots of talk even after Dobbs' uh, decision came down, like, will it fade? Will voters feel the same way come election time? And, and when we would do focus groups, um, 
it, it was it was clear it was not going to fade. I mean, abortion has essentially been banned in you know thirteen states, I think it is. So it's the reality. This isn't just you know what's in the news one week versus the other. And we heard people not just say like what they thought politically about the issue of abortion, but talk about like their own personal stories. They would talk about in a way I've never seen in twenty five years of moderating focus groups. So miscarriages or assaults or friends who had to leave the state because they had an emergency abortion, they couldn't do it in their state. Men who said, I'm thinking of moving because we want to have a second kid, but my wife is high risk and we don't want to be in a state that has abortion banned if we go through that. I mean, people really opened up. So it was clear, I think, both when looking at the you know qualitative and quantitative results that that people were really persuaded by abortion. And I, I think the other issue too, and abortion really kind of supports this, which is people, you know, we're, are getting sick and tired of, of how divided we are and feeling like there's no end in sight to the divisions that, you know, politicians are trying to score political points. They just care about their own careers. They just want to divide us. They just want to pit people against each other. Or they're making things up in their ads. And obviously people have, have thought that about politicians for a long time. That's not brand new. Um, but I think when you have some of these more, you know, a, a, a very common pattern of some more extreme sounding candidates on the right, I think it just adds to this notion that like things are have gotten a little adrift on the right. And, and even if it, not everybody is is following that storyline, enough people are that it, I think, makes a difference in a lot of places, especially where you have candidates who really kind of went there. Those focus groups you're deciding, I, I, I really feel like you're deepening my understanding of, of the role that abortion might have played here. I mean, it, it wasn't just fear after the Dobbs decision. I mean, it sounds like this is the kind of issue that when you got into focus groups are incredibly personal to families and Democrats have really struggled. I mean, as we were talking about, like connecting with voters, connecting with working class voters, make them make, you know, voters feel like that the Democratic Party is really there for them. It sounds like this abortion issue might have been a real opportunity that Democrats seized to say that, that, you know, these are decisions that can affect your lives, your families, very hard decisions. And we're the party that's there for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, people may not necessarily know what the what the new rules are in their state, but they very much know what's happening nationally. And and it, it was even folks who had you know were not necessarily following kind of the back and forth of what's happening in Washington know about this. And there were so many candidates on the right who, you know, really said something pretty you know pretty out there or refused to say anything at all. And even the folks who you know were trying to kind of be somewhere not necessarily in the middle, but you know, on the sort of leftish edge of the right, it's not really sufficient because people ultimately saw that what was happening in the Republican Party was they're just going way, way too far on abortion, you know, discussions of national bans, people who want to ban uh, abortion in cases of rape and incest, folks who, you know, want to ban early abortion medication that's legal and approved by the FDA, you know, preventing people from leaving the state, searching people's mail. Like there's just a lot out there that when you just talk about it a little bit, people, you know, immediately say like, whatever we feel about abortion, this is not it. Like this is a single digit position that the entire Republican Party is basically like caught up in is is very far away from where most folks are. Jim, what is what is your version of this on the Republican side? Is there an issue that sort of you saw was very personal to voters in focus groups and, and Republicans could look at that and say, you know, heading forward, that's our opportunity 
to really connect with voters and and message to them that we're the party that really cares about you. And if you didn't see that, what do you think the issue should be that, that Republicans should, should kind of go in that direction on? Well, I think that inflation, I think that was an issue that Republicans were clearly very focused on. And we did hear personal stories about voter struggles with inflation, heard stories about people who used to see their kids used to see their grandparents once a week, but now they saw them once every two weeks because the price of gas meant they couldn't justify the drive to see them. Personal stories like that. And look, they were effective. Republicans did. They did not have the night that they thought they would. Republicans still took the House. Republicans had some really big wins for incumbent governors. And so those types of stories did resonate with voters. And that's why Republican candidates focused on them, some more successfully than others. The the candidates who weren't positioned as as extreme, as outside the mainstream. And look, we ran some extreme and outside the mainstream candidates this cycle. There's no doubt about that. Those candidates didn't win. And are you sensing, as you talk to you know other pollsters and others um, in Republican Party politics, kind of a reckoning with that? That, I mean, now, okay, the party understands that those sort of candidates who are positioned as extreme are not going to succeed? And do you sense a, a movement in the party and, and an understanding of, of what the right path is for success going forward? This is an issue that we've had going back for, for as long as I've been doing this, right? Is what wins in a Republican primary is not necessarily what wins in a general election. So, so that's the central challenge, right? How do you get someone who has more of an appeal to moderates through a Republican primary so they can be a more successful general election candidate? It, it's not easy to do. It takes a lot of candidate skill. Again, a lot of these Republicans who had good success, it, it's not like the only people who won were Charlie Baker types or Larry Hogan types, right? Brian Kemp is deeply conservative. Greg Abbott is deeply conservative. They both had sizable wins. So a lot of it is your tone. Margie, the the Democratic advantage with Latino voters, 21 points, um, that's down from 40 in 2018. And and there are a lot of of thinkers, writers, um, people in politics who have been saying the reality is that that a majority of Latino voters in the United States are working class voters and the Democrats are just struggling to connect with working class voters in general, that that it's almost that simple. Um, What do you think of that narrative and and what is the party doing wrong and what should they do better? Well, um, you know, I I think that, um, you know, I think it's a mistake for anybody to view the Latino community as a monolith. um, uh, Which happens too often. Right. So in in any election cycle, and I I think um, it, you know, the uh, Latino voters come from a variety of different backgrounds, countries of origin, amount of time their families lived in the country. There's a gender gap and a partisan gender gap among Latino voters, just like there is with white voters, just like there is with black voters. Um, where men are more tend to be more Republican than are women, um, and so all of those play a role. And I think there's been a you know a, a lot of effort on the Democratic side to you know make sure we're continuing to communicate with Latino voters. I think Republicans have made a, an effort there. Some cycles there's more of an effort than others, and you know I think there have also been some Latino candidates on the Republican side that I think have been part of this conversation. Um, but it's something that's going to just change and vary from state to state, cycle to cycle. Um, I, I, you know, and it's something that obviously both parties should pay attention to. Jim, what, what is the Republican Party doing right in this area? I think that they are doing just what Margie said. Um, Republicans are doing a good job of, of showing up more than they used to, showing up in these communities. It used to be that the approach with Republican voters when it came, or with Republican candidates when it came to Hispanic 
votes was show up in October, run a couple ads in Spanish, and, and now you're doing it. And, and what we have learned from research, research, both qualitative and quantitative, is, is that doesn't work. It's, you have to have a constant presence there. Uh, there's a reason why Greg Abbott's victory party was in McAllen, Texas, and not in Austin or Dallas or Houston, because he knows that it's important to have a presence there. Same with DeSantis. There's a reason that he spent so much time in Puerto Rican communities, not just Cuban communities, but Puerto Rican communities, Venezuelan communities, Colombian communities in Florida. And Senator Rubio does the same thing, is that when you have a presence there, it helps. Voter, any type of voter, Hispanics included, just wants you to show up. And so it starts with showing up, and then it starts with having some policies that, that resonate with those voters. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. We have now reached that time for our famed left, right, and center rants and raves featuring pet peeves and projects from across the political spectrum. Uh, The panel, me, Mo, Sarah, we're going to take a show off and turn the floor over to Margie and Jim to see what's on their minds. Margie, I'll start with you. Look, maybe this means I'm not a very good person because I I do enjoy watching Republicans talk about what went wrong. Like I could watch a 24-hour news channel of that. But I think beyond that, there are Republican candidates who should look in the mirror and think about some of the messaging on issues like crime. Was that done well? Was it executed? Was that helpful or was it harmful? Part of it is that the execution really reinforced this notion that we've been talking about, that Republicans have this sort of mean-spirited take. And I think that, you know, as Republicans do their deep dives on their end, um, I think one of the things to think about, is this the right approach, the right way to talk about crime? Is there a way to talk about crime that, you know, is more understanding of what voters are going through and offering a solution rather than rhetoric? And I think press should think about uh, why folks are so quick to assume that this will work every cycle. Margie, no matter what anyone thinks about what you just said, you are a good person. I'm just going to say that, <laughs> state that clearly. Um, Jim. To all the websites out there that I'm a loyal subscriber to so I can read all the great journalism that they continue to put out, please save my password so I don't have to put it in over and over and over again or go to my app, which does save the password so I can read it. New York Times, New York Magazine, LA Times, Washington Post, I'm talking to you. Please save my password. You can have all my cookies. You can endanger my identity. But just please make it so I can easily read these articles. They're just trying to keep you safe, Jim. They're just trying to keep you safe. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's so frustrating. I'm with you. Now I definitely feel like a bad person. Don't worry, Margie. You can just come to our office. You can listen to Republicans talk about what we're wrong all day long. (laughs) That's all we do now. All right. I want to thank uh, Margie Amaro and Jim Hobart. Also, Sarah Isger and Moa Lathy. Left, Right, and Center is produced by Laura Dine Million. Our production assistant is Alexander Applegate. The show is recorded and mixed by John Meek. Todd M. Simon composed our theme music. Left, Right, and Center is a co-production of KCRW and Fearless Media. I'm David Green. We appreciate you joining us and uh, hope you tune in next week for more Left, Right, and Center. Download and subscribe at kcrw.com slash LRC, the KCRW app, or wherever you find podcasts. Left, Right, and Center is produced and distributed by KCRW. 